Welcome to Conference Coverage, presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160 and powered by Health Day, featuring the latest clinical information and research findings from the annual meeting of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, October 21st through the 24th in Vancouver, Canada. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, your host. And I'm Sue Berg. The 48th Annual Meeting of the Infectious Diseases Society of America attracted over 4,700 participants from 82 countries around the world. This year's conference, focused on prevention and management of infectious diseases, highlighted advances in several areas, such as the development of antibiotics and prevention of antibiotic resistance, HIV management, and both seasonal and H1N1 vaccine uptake and safety. Researchers at JMI Laboratories in Iowa introduced a novel single-drug combination therapy against methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA, and compared this to the current multiple-drug approach. The investigators found that combining a novel cephalosporin antibiotic called ceftaroline and a new beta-lactamase inhibitor called NXL104 prevented enterobacterial species from producing large amounts of AMP-C beta-lactamase and resistance to third-generation cephalosporins. In a statement, Dr. Ronald Jones, co-author of the study, said that the combination approach could be used against gram-negative and gram-positive infections. Though there are some antibiotic-resistant infections that this combination does not cover, Dr. Jones said it adds to the armamentarium for the vast majority of other resistant strains. This approach could be used as a single-drug combination to replace the use of multiple drugs currently treating one infection. This approach also has the potential to be cost-effective over the longer term. Several vaccines coming out this year were discussed at the meeting, including the 13-valent conjugate vaccine against invasive pneumococcal disease. This vaccine is aimed at minimizing disease burden in children under the age of 5. In March of 2010, the 13-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine replaced a 7-valent formulation in the U.S. infant immunization schedule. Investigators at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta said they expect the 13-valent vaccine will lead to a substantial reduction of invasive pneumococcal disease in children by the year 2020. This led to speculation at the meeting about whether the 13-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine could potentially be used in adults as well, which would be especially promising for elderly populations. Investigators at the International Center for Diarrheal Diseases Research in Bangladesh found that, for treatment of cholera, a single dose of azithromycin is more effective than six-dose ciprofloxacin therapy, the most commonly used antibiotic regimen for cholera. Recent data have shown that Vibrio cholerae strains have diminished susceptibility to ciprofloxacin. In this study, researchers randomized 246 patients with evidence of infection shown on dark field microscopy to either a single one-gram dose of azithromycin or six doses of ciprofloxacin, twice daily for three days. Their data showed that 63% of patients who received azithromycin were clinically successful, meaning there were no watery stools observed within 48 hours of starting therapy. Comparatively, only 44% of patients receiving ciprofloxacin achieved this clinical success. Meanwhile, bacteriological success was defined as no cholera bacteria in the stool within 48 hours of starting treatment. This was seen in 68% of patients who received azithromycin, but only 45% of those on ciprofloxacin. Investigators concluded that ciprofloxacin is no longer effective for cholera treatment, as Vibrio cholerae-01 strains have shown diminished susceptibility, while azithromycin does appear to be effective. Researchers at the University of British Columbia and Vancouver, Canada, reported that cell phone text messages improved outcomes for Kenyan HIV patients undergoing treatment with antiretroviral therapy. 
In the study, weekly text messages were compared to standard-of-care communications among HIV-infected patients starting antiretroviral therapy at three clinics in Kenya. The investigators assessed self-reported treatment adherence over the previous month and suppression of HIV-1 viral RNA load at one year. They found improvement in both adherence and viral load outcomes with text message-based support as compared to standard care. Patients reported that receiving text messages made them feel personally cared for and helped keep them on track with treatment administration. At the meeting, the lead author of this study, Dr. Richard T. Lester, added that there were both clinical and cost benefits associated with this type of approach. Better adherence to medications would lead to fewer medical crises and could help delay the need to use more expensive HIV drug regimens. Dr. Lester also talked about the importance of gathering evidence on patient-focused cell phone interventions for improving outcomes in resource-limited settings as mobile wireless communications evolve into a permanent part of global health care. Also in HIV care, Investigators at Massachusetts General Hospital evaluated so-called elite controllers demonstrating low susceptibility of CD4 T-cells to HIV-1 infection. The study's aim was to better understand the underlying mechanism for why these patients do not get sick from HIV infection. Elite controllers are a small population, between 0.3 and 1% of people infected with HIV-1, who never show clinical signs of AIDS. Investigators have hoped that understanding the mechanisms behind this innate control could potentially lead to a vaccine against AIDS. In the study, investigators found that reduced susceptibility to HIV-1 infection in elite controllers was associated with higher expression levels of the protein P21. The selective upregulation of P21 may represent a natural barrier against HIV-1 reverse transcription and mRNA transcription in CD4 T-cells. Investigators added that this intrinsic resistance of CD4 T-cells to HIV-1 might significantly contribute to the ability of elite controllers to maintain undetectable viral loads. Researchers in Chicago have found a local rise in the incidence of carbapenem-resistant enterobacteria, including those producing Klebsiella pneumoniae carbapenemase, or KPC. Reported cases have increased steadily since the first report of KPC in the Chicago area back in December 2007. Investigators at the Cook County Department of Public Health in Oak Park, Illinois, conducted two surveys to assess the extent of the problem. The first survey was conducted in March 2009 and the other in February 2010. Frequencies were calculated and two sample tests of proportions and means were performed to compare responses from the two time periods. In 2009, 26 of 54 health facilities in the Chicago area reported identification of KPC-producing bacteria. This figure rose to 37 of 57 facilities in 2010. Investigators also found that the average number of KPC-positive patients at each facility increased between 2009 and 10 from 3.8 to 10.2. The proportion of KPC-positive patients who needed intensive care during hospitalization also increased, from 23% in 2009 to 40% in 2010. A high proportion of KPC-positive patients were transferred from a long-term care facility or long-term acute care hospital during both survey periods, 81% in 2009 and 75% in 2010. Investigators concluded that KPC-producing bacteria are prevalent and increasing in the Chicago metropolitan area. The rise may be influenced in part by increased awareness, new screening protocols, and enhanced laboratory methods for detection.
Also, residents of long-term care facilities appear to be a major reservoir and source of KPCs. The researchers say that further studies are needed to determine risk factors for infection and to develop effective measures to prevent its spread. A novel adenovirus appears to be the cause of an outbreak of severe pneumonia and hepatitis in a group of monkeys at the California National Primate Research Center in Davis, California. Furthermore, the virus may have also been transmitted to a human. Adenoviruses can cause a broad spectrum of diseases in humans, including respiratory tract infections, gastroenteritis, conjunctivitis, and hepatitis. Infection from adenoviruses is generally thought to be species-specific. However, when an infection broke out among this group of TT monkeys at the California National Primate Research Center, a DNA microarray, called a virochip, was used to investigate the cause of the outbreak. The virochip is designed to detect all known and novel viruses on the basis of conserved sequence homology. Affected monkeys first developed upper respiratory symptoms that rapidly progressed into severe pneumonia and hepatitis. 23 of the 60 monkeys housed at the center became extremely ill, and 19 died though they had received aggressive medical treatment. Using tissue and swab samples from the infected monkeys, investigators found the signature of a novel adenovirus. This virus was divergent and a member of a new group, sharing only an 80 to 85% overall nucleotide identity with its closest relatives. Strong antibody responses in affected monkeys that survived the outbreak were found using serological analysis by virus neutralization, but these were not found in negative controls. The adenovirus was culturable in both human and monkey cell lines, but it grew best in human cell lines. One researcher at the center, who was in close contact with the TT monkeys, developed a severe pneumonia around the same time as the primate outbreak. The investigators concluded that, to their knowledge, this was the first example of a cross-species transmission event from adenovirus infection. Further studies are ongoing to establish whether the virus is of simian or human origin. New data presented on antibiotics and antibiotic resistance indicates that the Brazilian epidemic clonal complex of MRSA has been identified in the United States. The infection is associated with increased drug resistance, significant mortality, and risk for invasive disease. Investigators examined infections in the Midwestern United States associated with the ST239 MRSA strain. Among MRSA isolates collected between January 2007 and January 2010, researchers found that 6.6% were identified as ST239 from 71 patients. The mortality rate among these cases was 23%. The investigators found that the MRSA isolates were susceptible to vancomycin and linazolid, but significant resistance also occurred with clindamycin, 100%, tetracycline, 92%, the drugs trimethoprim and sulfamethoxazole given together, 75%, monofloxacin, 88%, and gentamicin, 94%. In another study, researchers at the RAND Corporation in Boston evaluated the benefits associated with specific MRSA prevention strategies among patients admitted to intensive care units. The largest number of MRSA cases prevented came from the strategy for universal contact precautions plus universal decolonization. Other studies presented during the session showed that drugs such as fusidic acid, which is used in Europe, Australia, and Canada, and JNJQ2, a novel fluorinated 4-quinolone, may provide alternative options to address bacterial infections when currently available antibiotics fail. Investigators said that fusidic acid demonstrated potent activity against the current collection of Staphylococcus aureus in U.S. hospitals. 
They noted that fusidic acid activity was comparable to tigecycline, which is currently used for MRSA infections. And both fusidic acid and tigecycline were at least twofold more active than other agents with similar clinical indications. According to two studies presented during an influenza press conference, the 2009 H1N1 influenza vaccine appears to be safe in pregnant women, with vaccine uptake among pregnant women higher than in previous seasons. Pregnant women were among the highest priority groups for the 2009 H1N1 vaccine, due to disproportionately high mortality from the last year's H1N1 virus. Researchers at the Marshfield Clinic Research Foundation in Wisconsin evaluated 717 pregnant women to assess short-term adverse events after H1N1 vaccination. 33% received either H1N1 vaccine, seasonal vaccine, both vaccines, or no vaccine. All patients were 18 years or older and at least 38 weeks along in their pregnancy. The women recorded their temperatures for seven days after enrollment, and their symptoms, including headache, nausea, muscle aches, chills, diarrhea, rash, and sore arm, for 14 days. They were asked to rate symptom severity as absent, mild, moderate, or severe. 85% of the vaccinated women reported at least one symptom, the most common side effect being sore arm, followed by headache, nausea, and muscle aches. But symptom severity was rated mild on average. Pregnant women receiving the vaccine were no more likely than non-vaccinated women to report short-term side effects. In another study, investigators at the Christiana Care Health System in Newark, Delaware, evaluated reasons for lack of vaccination in pregnant women. Researchers administered a 12-question survey to about 300 women who delivered their babies at the hospital between February 1st and April 15, 2010. The survey ascertained maternal characteristics, history of prior to current seasonal influenza vaccination, and reasons for lack of vaccination. Of the women surveyed, nearly 62% were vaccinated against H1N1 and 25% were offered but refused vaccination. Researchers found that African-American women were less likely to have been vaccinated, the most commonly cited reason for refusing vaccination was concern about H1N1 vaccine safety. Also, patients whose doctors specifically recommended H1N1 vaccination were more likely to have been vaccinated than those whose doctors did not recommend or mention it. The investigators reported that overall uptake of H1N1 vaccine among pregnant women was substantially higher than that reported during previous influenza seasons. But, they said, to improve uptake... Providers, as well as under-vaccinated populations, need to become better educated about misconceptions regarding the vaccine. Thank you for listening to conference coverage from the annual meeting of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, October 21st through the 24th in Vancouver, Canada. Conference coverage is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD, and powered by Health Day.